together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... Well, we warned you. Here's what I say. We all take a week off. I'll get a high colonic. Then we'll come back with a new family, a bigger institute. And another studio. We're not spending another dime on this picture. You're nuts to want to do this again. Don't call me nuts. You're nuts. You're nuts. You're nuts. You're nuts. You're nuts. You're nuts. Last week, we concluded a deep dive into the various horror spoofs and parodies of the 1980s, and this week we're going deep into a master of micro-observant satirization, the great Albert Brooks. It's a tale that involves PBS parodies, unhealthy relationships, Stanley Kubrick, and a heaping helping of Julie Haggerty. Oh, it's on now. It's on, baby. On with the show. You Lost the Nest Egg, The Films of Albert Brooks, Part 1. Albert Brooks was born Albert Einstein, really, in 1947 to entertainer parents in Beverly Hills. His father Harry was a radio comedian, his mother Thelma an actress and singer, so performing was in his blood. Literally. In his 20s, he began working steadily as a comedian, and soon found himself regularly appearing on the likes of The Tonight Show, always bringing down the house. In 1973, he released his first record, Comedy Minus One, and followed it up two years later with A Star Is Bought, which secured him a Grammy nomination. The same year as that record, he debuted a series of shorts on the inaugural season of Saturday Night Live, back when it was known as NBC's Saturday Night. The year after that, he co-starred in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, but like all actors, what he really wanted to do was direct. He was fascinated with a documentary series that aired on PBS earlier in the decade called An American Family, which chronicled a year in the life of the Loud family, really, in Santa Barbara, California, often regarded as the first reality show. Seeing this series as a harbinger of things to come, he was inspired to star in, co-write, and make his directorial debut with a spoof of An American Family, 1979's Real Life. Hello, I'm Albert Brooks. I've just completed a motion picture so exciting that the following announcement will be presented in 3D, so you can literally feel the excitement. 
You will find special glasses under each of your seats. Put them on now, won't you? Oh, if you happen to be in a theater that has no glasses, don't worry. You can share in the fun, too. Simply turn to the person you're sitting next to and borrow a piece of red and blue cellophane. Then, put one over each eye, like this. Got it? Good. Now we're all ready to enter into the world of 3D. Well, hello again. A little different, isn't it? Does it scare you? <laughs> oh, come back, come back. I'm just having some fun. I didn't mean to scare you. I like you. That's why I want to tell you about a new movie called Real Life. Real Life tells the story of what happens when a real family's life is turned into a major motion picture. That family could have been you. Or you. Or you. Well, we're almost out of time. My watch is gone. Somebody stole my watch. Somebody in this theater stole my watch. Yes, you took advantage of this special process and you snuck right up on the screen and took my wristwatch. Much like the series it satirized, Real Life asked an important question. Is there anything real about a life documented secondhand for posterity? Brooks seems to believe that no, there isn't. This ambitious, conceptual, and deeply prophetic film presents itself as a faux documentary, years before the likes of Spinal Tap and the films of Christopher Guest. Brooks plays a version of himself, an unscrupulous comedian and filmmaker who decides to document the lives of a dysfunctional family for an entire year under the auspices of research, but in reality to secure himself an Academy Award or a Nobel Peace Prize, whichever is more attainable. Oh, that's quality comedy right there. If that sounds relatively straightforward, I'm leaving out some key absurdist details. Documenting the family are six photographers in giant state-of-the-art helmet cameras that look like something Daft Punk would have worn in 1979 if they were performing on the surface of the moon. The Etenauer needs no special lighting, and it uses no film. Yes, all picture and sound information is recorded digitally on these integrated circuit chips, some no larger than a child's fingernail. When these chips are filled to capacity, they will be removed from this housing and then mailed back to the Institute, where they're decoded and then transferred to film as we know it. Only six of these cameras were ever made. Only five of them ever worked. We had four of those. All of the footage we see throughout the film is ostensibly shot with these helmet cameras, and every couple minutes or so, one will be captured in the corner of the frame, and I gotta say, it never stops being amusing. Like, never. Anytime you start investing in the scene and are lulled into a deceptive plausibility, the reality is broken with a glimpse of the camera helmets, constantly reminding the viewer of the artificiality of the entire enterprise. The subjects of the documentary are the Jaegers, led by Patriarch Warren, the late great Charles Grodin, Matriarch Jeanette, Francis Lee McCain, and son and daughter Eric and Lisa a family that feels ill at ease with their new reality. Warren immediately becomes performative, insisting that his family is much happier and more well-adjusted than they clearly are, all in the interest of saving face and projecting a sense of relative normality. Jeanette is clearly unhappy with her marriage, unable to connect with her husband, whom she barely recognizes in front of the cameras, and begins to find solace in the affection of Albert Brooks, 
further impeding his ability to remain impartial and intertwining his fate with those he insists he's documenting for science. Real life is somehow conscious of all the tropes of documentary filmmaking and so-called reality television years before the latter was ever even a thing. It is fascinating to watch it now, knowing that only two decades later we would be inundated with the likes of the real world or the Osbournes, these inherently artificial, often sensational creations presented under the guise of social documents. It questions the ethics of monitoring human behavior for the purposes of a commercial endeavor, but does all this without losing an undercurrent of silliness and joviality in a way that reminds me of the early films of Woody Allen. I find it interesting that both Brooks and Allen made their featured directorial debuts on mockumentaries. Allen on Take the Money and Run, and Brooks on this. We've already mentioned that part. I don't know why you're bringing this up now. You know that it's on this. Real life is very specific in its satire, but also wide-ranging. Brooks's character professes that his intentions are scientific, but his actions communicate that he's actually chasing conflict, and he takes every possible opportunity to editorialize. I admit that none of this sounds particularly hilarious, that it sounds like homework or maybe even didactic, but it's the execution that drives the hilarity. The screenplay by Brooks, his frequent writing partner Monica Johnson, and Spinal Tap's own Harry Shearer is tremendously intelligent and only gets more relevant with every passing day. I find it interesting to note that this and Cannibal Holocaust are released in the same year because both take a similar stance on the idea of documentary filmmaking by calling into questions the intentions of the documentarian, although they uh, honestly go about their stances in very different ways. For instance, Brooks killed far fewer animals on camera. I'm not saying he didn't kill any, I'm just saying fewer. Real Life was not a financial success, grossing a little over $300,000, but that didn't stop Brooks from pushing forward to the next thing. And two years later, he delivered his second film, 1981's anti-romantic comedy about possessiveness, neuroses, and toxicity, Modern Romance. I don't think that we should go out anymore. I mean, I, I just think it's over. Okay, it's over again. No, not again. This is it. This is the last time. It's for real. You've heard of a no-win situation, haven't you? No. Really, no? You've never heard of one? Vietnam? This? After Robert broke up with a girl of his dreams... Don't call me either, okay? Stop, Dad! Very sweet. Thanks. He was single. There's 10 million people in this city alone. How difficult can it be to find one perfect person? It's not that big a deal. He was free. A call. A call, Mr. Popularity. Mr. Popularity. Hello. He took vitamins. You broke up with somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, you're gonna need C, magnesium. He started running. One, two, three, I don't even miss her. Two, three. He started dating. Ellen, Ellen, out of the past. Ellen, Petey, Ellen. He had everything a modern guy could want. Robert Cole, everything you do from this moment on will only make you feel better. He felt awful. I'm alone now. I don't want to play Lou. What am I gonna do, hug myself? Please, I don't... Okay. Got another Columbia Pictures presents a film by Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks and Catherine Harold in Modern Romance. If it isn't love, what is it? I love you very much. Mary. 
modern romance begins where most rom-coms end, the death of a relationship. Brooks plays film editor Robert Cole, a man stuck in a perpetual rut of coupling and quickly breaking up with his girlfriend Mary, played by Catherine Harold. When we first meet these characters in the process of yet another breakup, something is thunderously clear. They've been here before. No question, this is routine for them. And in a couple days after the requisite cooling off process, they'll resume again, and in fact, that's what they do. Like real life, modern romance isn't very plot-driven. Instead, it's a character piece about an insecure schmuck and the woman who tolerates him on occasion, only to eventually lose her patience when he proves to be too much to bear. I've related to movie characters before, but this is on a different level. Ask any of my exes. They will definitely tell you I'm a schmuck. Upon breaking up, Robert typically spends his energy low-key pursuing Mary once more, calling her workplace at the drop of a dime, buying her gifts and leaving them on her front porch, only to constantly drive by her house until he sees that she's received his presence. It feels observed and rooted in personal experience on the part of Brooks and his co-screenwriter Monica Johnson, emotionally raw and uncomfortably honest. Brooks and Johnson clearly know unhealthy relationships in a way that's more than skin deep. Brooks himself has said, quote, Two years ago, I was going out with a woman, the relationship had ended, but I found myself driving around her house over and over again. I felt pinned to my car. I couldn't do anything else but keep circling the house, and I couldn't even figure out why I was doing it. Finally, I thought, why don't I pull over and write this down? It might make a good film. You want to know who it is? It's my brother's girlfriend, okay? Okay. All right, so I asked a question and you answered me. It's not so difficult. You don't have to tell me it's your brother's girlfriend if it isn't. I mean, I can take it. Let's just get it over with. Who is it really? Hurt me. God, there's something wrong with you. No, there isn't. I'm in love. That's not it. Yes. No. Yes, I'm in love. I love you. I called the number. A guy answered. Obviously, a guy isn't your brother's girlfriend. So who is he? You slept with him? Twice? I'm going home. All right, hold it. The script refuses to stoop to gags, building scenes through character and personal interaction, striving to capture some semblance of reality in moments that, in other comedies, would feel joke-heavy. And yet, even without jokes per se, it's no less funny than any blockbuster comedy in recent memory. In fact, it's funnier. I'm just going to say that flat out right now. It's funnier. It's a rom-com for people that understand that there's no com in rom until rom dies. And perhaps that's why it didn't exactly set the box office on fire. The critical and commercial reaction to modern romance was very polarized, and Brooks fell into a deep funk, which is highly ironic considering he just made a movie about a character in a deep funk. Thankfully, the picture won at least one high-profile fan, none other than Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick even requested Brooks's home phone number and called him up to praise modern romance and commend him for managing to make a movie about jealousy, something that Kubrick had long wanted to do, and eventually did with his final film, Eyes Wide Shut. Kubrick's validation revitalized Brooks during a particularly low period, as he was growing disillusioned with the industry and unsure exactly what he could bring to film. Who knows? Without Kubrick, 
maybe Brooks's directorial career ends then and there. With Kubrick's encouragement throwing wind back into his sails, Brooks pressed ahead with his next film, 1985's Lost in America. You're just nervous about tomorrow. You'll get the promotion, we'll move into the new house, and we'll be happy, okay? You should hear your voice. It just filled this room with excitement. This is David and Linda Howard. They're happily married. I want to have sex with you right here. Right now, right here. And they're about to have a day. This is it. They'll remember the rest of their lives. David, you're fired. Fired? Oh, I'm fired! Now, they're going to drop out. We have to touch Indians. We have to see the mountains and the prairies and the whole rest of that song. Set out to find the American dream. Well, the movie you're basing your whole life on Easy Rider, they had no nest egg. They had a giant nest egg. They had all this cocaine. And wind up lost in America. To America, look out. Here we come. <laughs> the Geffen Company presents Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty. Lost in America. Great movie. You gotta see it. It's historic. Brooks plays David Howard, a yuppie baby boomer whose life is consumed with behaving professionally. He's raking in the big bucks working for a top advertising firm and in the full throes of a midlife crisis, spurred on by being denied a promotion. After cussing out his boss, David is promptly fired and escorted from the building and impulsively convinces his wife Linda, played by possibly the greatest straight woman ever, Julie Haggerty, to liquidate their assets, drop out of society, and set off across the country in a Winnebago, yes, a Winnebago, in an effort to find themselves. Their first destination, Las Vegas, where over one long evening, Linda gambles away their collective life savings, leaving them literally lost in America. Eh, get it? Now they have to eat shit and take humdrum jobs just to keep their heads above water, confronting the realities of living off the grid and coming face-to-face -face with the results of their entitlement. If the big chill was a rallying cry for boomers, Lost in America is an angry dressing down, attacking the materialism and self-absorption of the Reagan era with a simmering rage. Brooks's direction is so confident, which is commendable considering that he was also the star. The style and incisive subversion at the film's core preserves its timeliness. If the fashions, technologies, and cultural references weren't dead giveaways of the film having been made in 1985, it would be hard to say that the film is dated. It feels contemporary and as honest about the vagaries of unfettered materialism as it was back in the day, nothing having been dulled over time. The scene in which Brooks tries to convince a casino pit boss to return the money his wife just gambled away is a masterclass in deluded desperation, further enhanced by the casting of director Gary Marshall as the immovable object. Amused by Brooks's persistence, but also somewhat aghast at his inability to face facts and accept responsibility. We lost our nest egg here. I realize you lost a lot of money. Your room and your food comped free. Oh, oh no, 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 no. I didn't mean that. That's not what, that's not what I meant. Um, <clears throat> all right. I'm going to tell you this idea now. And please be secretive. Because if another hotel hears about this, they'll take it. This is my business. As the boldest experiment in advertising history, you give us our money back. 
I beg your pardon? Give us our money back. Think of the publicity. The Hilton Hotels has these billboards all over Los Angeles where the winners of these slot machine jackpots, their faces are all over L.A., and I know that works. I've seen people at corners look up and say, maybe I'll go to the Hilton. Well, you give us our money back. Uh, I, I, I don't even know now because I'm just coming off the top of my head, but a visual where if we had a billboard and the Desert Inn handed us our nest egg back, this gives the Desert Inn, really, Vegas is not associated with feeling. Well, first of all, those people on those signs, they won. You lost. But that's it. Considering how scathing Lost in America is, it's kind of surprising to learn that this was Brooks's first, first box office hit. The best comedy holds up a mirror to those in the audience, and Lost in America is no exception. Next week, we're concluding this two-part deep dive into the films of Albert Brooks as we take an express tram to the afterlife, witness Sharon Stone bribing Golden Globes voters, and hold comedy shows in New Delhi. Stay tuned. And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content and super fun weekly minisodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolnesschronicles. This Friday, we're diving even further into my favorite and least favorite cinematic discoveries of the past year. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. In my recent obsession with the Watch TCM app, I've discovered a few real surprises, and this week I'm recommending a thrillingly idiosyncratic, clever little film from 1980 called Simon. Who I am and why I've been sent here to live among you. And the answer is really very simple. Things here are just not working out very well. Your jobs are boring, your food is bland, your water is polluted, and your relationships don't work. Is that not right? And the question is, how have things come to such a sorry state of affairs? I will tell you. There is too much bad stuff around. Bad food, bad drink, bad art, bad ideas. Everything's all clogged up. So what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of all the bad stuff, and that will be a very good beginning. Now, I have your list of things which I'd like written in the Constitution immediately, after which I promise you your lives will be less tense and more rewarding. Okay, stop me if you've heard this one before. A scientific think tank encloses a man in a sensory deprivation tank for 80 hours in order to brainwash him into thinking that he's an alien, only for him to become a cultural sensation. That sounds interesting, right? Well, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Simon is the directorial debut of Marshall Brickman, best known as the co-writer of some of Woody Allen's best films like Annie Hall, Sleeper, and Manhattan, and you can feel the influence infused into the picture. It's a fascinating film, and if you're looking for something that is out there and endearing in equal measure, look no further. It's not currently streaming for free anywhere, but keep your eyes peeled to the Watch TCM app, and maybe it'll return soon. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com slash coolnesspodcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as The Coolness Chronicles, and share it with anyone you can, 
any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. This is a 1,000% independent nonprofit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Have questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this series? Contact me on Twitter, at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram, at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also, check out the other podcast that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of her wonderful artwork, Bill Sherm for all of her wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Isabel T, Bobby L, Michael A, Ian C, T-Flex, Ian M, Kitty K, Kelly B, The Vern, Michael H, Mary M, Bill M, Christopher H, Christopher J, Tracy R, and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care. Dawn, that's the end.